On this week's TribCast, we'll talk about Beto O'Rourke's debate performance, the accusations shaking up the Texas House Speaker's office, and what Texas lawmakers really knew about how their new hemp bill would impact marijuana prosecutions. But before we do, I want to thank our TribCast sponsors. The Texas State University System. The Lamar State Colleges in Southeast Texas have reduced tuition by 25% to the lowest level in 10 years. Learn more at tsus.edu. And the Texas Alliance for Patient Access. Medical liability reform delivering results for Texas patients. More at tapa.info. Hi there, this is Emma Platoff here on Wednesday, July 31st with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by state politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Hello. Politics editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. And reporter Patrick Svitek, who I'm told requires no introduction. <laughs> Thank you. Good afternoon. <laughs> told by Patrick. <laughs> Uh, We'll also be taking your questions in real time via Facebook and Twitter, so send them our way using the hashtag TribCast. Cassie, I want to get started with you and the political drama that's been roiling the Texas House this week. Um, Speaker Dennis Bonin left his first session looking like a golden boy, notched important wins on property taxes and school finance, and basically kept the peace. But over the past week, he's had to contend with some pretty serious accusations from a controversial Tea Party figure, Michael Quinn Sullivan. Can you catch us up? Uh, Yes, I can. Uh, So basically everything is centered on what happened at this June 12th meeting. And, uh, you know, there's some some pretty large gaps that we've still yet to fill out. Um, Sullivan, uh, Michael Quinn Sullivan, uh, posted a story on his organization's website last Thursday, uh, basically alleging that he had met with uh, Bonin and one of Bonin's top allies, State Representative Dustin Burroughs, who also happens to be chair of the House GOP caucus. And in that meeting, Sullivan says, uh, Bonin and Burroughs offered uh, Sullivan's organization long-denied House media credentials in exchange for getting involved in some uh, primary races, uh, basically against uh, races against House incumbents, uh, House Republican incumbents. Um, so that's, of course, what Sullivan uh, stipulated, alleged, and you know it was it was pretty quiet quiet out there for a while. We didn't really get a response from the speaker uh, until Friday, uh, a, a full day after everything had happened. And that was uh, just really in an email to House Republicans. Um, there were some questions left over um, from that statement. Um, a lot of members feeling unsettled, frustrated. And you know that kind of brought us uh, through the weekend to Monday where we had uh, the speaker's first public statement um, on the allegations um, you, you know, publicly, I guess, denying what uh, Sullivan had been alleging. So uh, now we're here, um, almost a full week after these allegations uh, from Sullivan surfaced. Still a ton of questions, uh, a lot of uncertainty, and uh, yeah. No, number one question seems to be what actually happened in that meeting, right? And we really don't know. It's it's kind of a he said, he said type situation at this point. And just going back for a minute there, the allegation uh, from Sullivan, or at least how his account is portrayed, is that Burroughs specifically was the one who allegedly presented this target list, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, Sullivan's really specific in his account. He says that the speaker left the room. Uh, this meeting, uh, according to Sullivan, took place in the speaker's office at the Texas Capitol. So, you know, he's saying that the speaker left the room and that Burroughs handed him a target list of 10 House Republicans. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, I don't know, room for speculation as to 
how members were, were put on that list, it all seems to kind of get traced back to um, the speaker's race last fall. Um, and, you know, up until this point, we haven't had just a point blank denial from the speaker saying uh, you, neither myself nor Burroughs handed Sullivan a 10 member list. And so that seems to be kind of where there's a lot of. Uh, yeah, he didn't seem to address that specific allegation in the email that he sent to members on Friday night. And then he seemed to address it more directly in the statement he issued on Monday, right? right? Nowhere in our conversation did right. a list come up. Right. The right. the super skeptic could say, well, Sullivan said that you left the room. So what happened with Burroughs, which we haven't heard? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, you could also argue that's really kind of nitpicking. But when when the speaker is not really coming out and answering any questions about this, those are kind of the, the questions yeah. that arise. In uh, the speaker's public statement on Monday, you know, he chalked up basically the reason why he had to put out something uh, to, the, to the public or to the media was just because his original... Uh, you know, rebuttal, I guess, or, or pushing back of Sullivan's account was due to, you know, like us in the media kind of misconstruing or maybe even missing the larger point that he was trying to make, which I don't think sat over just generally too well with a lot of members and obviously people who have been trying to follow this story. Um, well, can, can you kind of sum up the what the reaction among members has been since Thursday when this came out? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of members were curious why uh, they couldn't, a, have some sort of, um, you know, uh, I guess heads up that reports were coming down the pipe and that they could, you know, at some point be made public. There was a lot of uh, concern or, you know, and I'm saying frustration, that may be too strong of a word at this point, but just really overall, just like questions all around as to, uh, you know, why haven't there been, why hasn't there been like a better response coming from the speaker's office as these allegations surfaced and as they've just kind of continued to sit and, you know, as we reported, they've really been roiling this chamber. Um, as of, you know, uh, when we published our first story on Friday, um, a number of members still hadn't touched, a number of members on that 10-member list hadn't really touched base with the Speaker's office. And those who have, you know, were obviously met with denials from those allegations and that something at some point was going to happen, uh, to, you know, to, to solidify that. Just to back us up a bit, I think some folks in the House were particularly surprised at these allegations, given kind of what we've heard from Bonin in the past, both on his plans for the 2020 elections and his pledge to protect all House incumbents, um, and also his comments on Michael Quinn Sullivan's uh, sort of powerful political group, Empower Texans. Can you set that context a little bit? Yeah, on the last day of session, you know, Speaker sits down with a number of reporters to kind of sum up. Uh, what really was billed as a successful session, especially for a first-term speaker by all accounts. And, you know, he made, asked a couple questions about the 2020 elections, and he just made very clear uh, on the record that if incumbents were caught campaigning openly against other incumbents, that there would be uh, consequences come 2021 when the legislature reconvenes. And, uh, you know, I think one question that's kind of emerged as everything's continued to play out these past few days is, you know, was was Bonin just more or less saying that to kind of take a public stance on it? And, you know, there were never really any specific, I guess, uh, he didn't specifically outline what campaigning looked like or what the definition, you know, I guess what he was chalking up to the definition of campaigning. Could I, a sitting House member, you know, donate to a certain group that then goes and gets involved in a primary, you know, a primary race? Like, was that campaigning? And so there's just a lot of questions Um Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, so given all that, I mean, let's probably walk through the reason for skepticism on both sides of this, What, why mm -hmm. we should not entirely believe either person. <laughs> Obviously, Michael Quinn Sullivan is a, is a controversial figure. 
um, you know, his organization Empower Texans, and I'm sure he would disagree with his characterization, but I think it's it's safe to say that the lifeblood of the organization is trying to push the Republican Party of Texas in, in, in their ideological direction. You could argue about which direction that is or which ideology that is, but they are definitely a group that is 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 based on uh, you know, pushing the Republican uh, caucus in, in a certain direction. And so they thrive on on this kind of intra-party disagreement and conflict. And so um, clearly, you know, that gives you some pause. Um, Bonin has has criticized him pretty vocally. Um, and then on Bonin's end, you know, the reason for skepticism is this, as you just pointed out, you know, uh, this would unravel basically everything that he's pledged up until this point in terms of keeping the peace within the House Republican Caucus and the, the House uh, more broadly. Um, and so you, you just have reason not to entirely believe both sides. On this yeah, and yeah. Go ahead. I think, you know, there, there are a lot of people who've been on the other side of fights with Empower Texans who would argue that they, you know, have sometimes played fast and loose with the facts. You sure. Know, yeah, I remember Charlie Garen, yeah. yeah, telling me one time, you know, that there's something along the lines of like, there's not a lie that Michael Quinn Sullivan won't tell. And so, you know, I think there's at least a, a faction of the house that is extremely skeptical of something that he would come out and say along these lines. Um, but on the other hand, I think there's legitimate questions to ask Bonin about this. You know, the, the number one that I would have on my list is, you know, you mentioned that you had Representative Burroughs in the meeting to serve as kind of a witness for you due to the purported untrustworthiness of Michael Quinn Sullivan. And now that Michael Quinn Sullivan has come out and given his side of the story, why are you asking your witness, the person who is in the room to be kind of able to protect you against these kinds of things? Why are you asking him to be silent? Yeah. And there's a number of, I mean, that's obviously one huge question. Uh, another big question that everybody seems to be asking is um, in Sullivan's account, initial account of how everything kind of played out, he mentioned that he had sent Bonin and Burroughs a letter after this June 12th meeting, uh, more or less just rejecting their offer. And, uh, you know, he didn't include a link to that. He didn't include that copy of his letter in his write-up, but he did include the response that Bonin wrote in writing, which uh, did a couple of things. It confirmed that the meeting happened, and then it also uh, said that Sullivan um, had a misimpression of what they had talked about. Um, you know, Sullivan has has been asked, obviously, by us and I think many others, why won't you just release your copy of the letter? And, you know, he said that he doesn't have any plans to and to to take it up with either the Speaker's office or Burroughs' office, uh, both, you know, who he says have copies of it. And his reason was a head scratcher. The, <laughs> the, the idea that he, it was a draft and that only Bonin has the final copy, which, you know. On parchment. Yeah. Turning this to another head scratcher, I think a lot of people, you know, one of the many surprises in this story was who is on this alleged list of 10 members and also who isn't on it. So can you give us a picture of who's who's on this list and why or why not we might be surprised to see their names there? Yeah. So, you know, Sullivan, uh, again, in his post says that he was told by Burroughs in this meeting uh, that this list had been drafted just based on who had voted against a controversial taxpayer funded lobbying uh, ban. And it um, obviously died pretty overwhelmingly in the House. And, you know, I think there were like over 20 uh, Republicans who, who voted against it. And so, you know, Sullivan notes that while that was Burroughs' reasoning, you know, why is this list only, only 10 members long instead of the full, you know, 20 odd or 20 something members, Republican members who voted against it? So, you know, I think 
that's certainly maybe one reason uh, how or why this list was drafted the way it was. But also, uh, you know, if you're just talking to members, uh, there's uh, a multiple members on that list who ran for speaker and two of them, Travis Clardy and Drew Darby, who, uh, you know, it's, it's the very end of the, the speaker's race. It's all but declared that uh, Bonin is going to be replacing Joe Strauss at the gavel. And, you know, you had two of them who uh, didn't want to get out of the race, right? They were hoping for like a last, a, a long shot uh, at victory here. Um, and so, you know, a lot of speculation. Um, Bonin, I think, just being a longtime fixture of the house and being maybe more uh, quick-tempered than uh, some of his colleagues, uh, you know, it's been suggested that maybe, you know, there's there's members on that list who, you know, he just had past run-ins with, past grudges, and that's uh, maybe the root of how or why this alleged list uh, was created. All right, we could talk about this all day, but I'll, I'll leave us with one ominous question. Um, we may not have all the answers here, but we do know that these two men met, and that says a lot, I think, about both of them. Does this end for Bonin? I mean, what's the what's the end of this story? What's next? You know, look, I, I think that it's a, you know, there's definitely questions, as some outstanding questions for the media to keep asking and the public may be interested in, in terms of this being an external, prob uh, an external problem for him. But I think in terms of the longevity of it, that's more about what the internal politics of, of this are. I think, you know, you, you saw one member come out on Monday who was allegedly on that list, Ernest Bales, and pressed for more answers. I don't know if he did it privately or it leaked or, or whatever, but, you know, I, I think that this is more right now, more of an internal than an external problem for Bond. And I mean, mm -hmm. certainly there's some headaches in terms of how do you, <laughs> you know, how do you engage with the media on this? How do you, you talk about this publicly? Um, but I think for some of those, those 10 members that were allegedly on that list, there's, you know, there's always going to be some doubt in the back of their mind, no matter what Bonin says or no matter how strongly he says it. And so I think for him, it, you know, to the extent it's going to be a persistent issue for him going forward, it, it's especially, it could manifest itself uh, internally versus externally. Yeah. I think just the larger or the next question um, that seems to, again, be on everybody's mind is, does either side here have evidence that they're either willing or planning to make public at some point to back up their version of, event, of, of events. And I think that's where this is heading. Maybe we're never going to get there. Uh, nobody knows. And if they do know, they don't want to say. So <laughs> Yeah. At, at the very least, you know, one of the reasons that this has been so fascinating is that until now, Bonin has really impressed in his ability to kind of keep the peace and run a tight ship in the house. And this, you know, really feels like it's his first kind of test of leadership. Um, where I guess that leadership is kind of being called into question. Political leadership. Political yeah. leadership, yeah. And, you know, um, so best case scenario for him, this Michael Quinn Sullivan's uh, characterization of this meeting is just completely untrue, but he's still kind of having to ask, answer the questions is, why were you meeting this with this guy in this first place? This guy who is primaried members of the chamber who has... Um, who you basically declared irrelevant at the end of the session. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think, one of the great ironies of this is that, you know, I mean, I've been here for maybe four or five years now, and, and a consistent, you know, thing throughout that is Republicans in the Texas House constantly criticizing empowered Texans, saying they're irrelevant, they don't matter, and yet they just can't quite wean themselves <laughs> off of, of this group. Like, they're taking meetings, and under, obviously Bonin took, appeared to take that meeting and, with the best intentions in terms of advancing his goal, perhaps of, uh, you know, maybe keeping the peace or trying to, in his unique way, keep the peace. Um, but I think as you, 
you just pointed out, some folks would wonder why even meet in the first place and continue to give them and, and I think it's true that Empower Texans had a really tough session. Their attempts to influence some of the biggest pieces of legislation fell flat, and some of the bills that they were pushing for didn't end up going anywhere. But now we're in election season, and the thing that Empower Texans undeniably has is access to money, money that can be spent on elections. And, you know, whether or not they're influencing legislation, you know, lawmakers are going to care if they're being targeted by this group that has a lot of money to spend and has, you know, used some pretty aggressive tactics in elections in the past. All right. Well, more to come on this story. Um, turning to two other Texans in the hot seat this week, the cattle call continues for uh, Democrats running for president as they flock to Detroit for the second round of debates. Um, Patrick, we heard last night from Beto O'Rourke, who, as you've reported, had something to prove with this performance. How do you do? He did better. Not best. Can we get a letter grade, maybe? <laughs> I do not do letter grades. I think he, he look, he, he definitely came across in his answers uh, on policy issues as more polished. He came across as a little more assertive. Um, now, he did not, he was not under duress as much as he was in the last debate. People, I don't think, saw as much of a need uh, to criticize him or go after him as they did in the last debate. And so he had much more space to kind of operate without being heavily scrutinized by other folks on the stage. And so I think that contributed to the, the perception that he, he uh, did better. Um, at the same time, though, it, it wasn't a, you know, a breakout debate for him. I wouldn't say it was a, you know, you know, overly strong performance or anything. I think that one of the big themes last night was um, this battle um, that you very vocal battle you saw between the, the kind of progressive candidates on the stage and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, and then some of these more moderate long shot candidates like John Delaney and, and John Hickenlooper and, and Tim Ryan. Um, and I think O'Rourke and, and some other candidates uh, who did not fit into that, the dynamic of that exact debate got a little bit lost and drowned out with their message. Um, O'Rourke did try to get in on that debate when it came to healthcare. I mean, he's very confident that this plan he's supporting represents kind of the sweet spot between Medicare for all and improving Obamacare. And I think it was important for him to get that message across. But again, it, it definitely wasn't, in my estimation, a memorable moment. And I think it may have gotten uh, drowned out a little bit between the, the vocal back and forth between the two ends of the, the ideological spectrum. We also heard him talk a lot about Texas and her uh, 38 electoral right. votes. Is that, <laughs> exactly. Does that seem to be part of a strategy here? It seemed like he was playing the old hits, you know. Uh, he, I, I think he he talked about going to all two fifty four counties, you know, which several was times. His his big um, his Senate debate, you know, and that was when Beto was at his peak when he was he was running against Ted Cruz, and it, it felt like he was kind of going back to his comfort zone a little bit there. Yeah, I mean, since the beginning of the presidential campaign, make no mistake, Texas has been a big part of his pitch. You know, his relative success here. Obviously, he lost, but there were down ballot gains, and he came closer and a lot of people in a long time statewide. Um, Texas has always been a big part of his campaign, but it definitely seems like recently he's been much more emphatic uh, on that kind of uh, part of his his campaign message uh, and talking a lot about his potential to, to carry the state in the general election if he's nominated. I, I was going to say, I think you could make the argument that he's polling in the low single digits and someone polling in the low single digits needs to have a breakout moment that kind of treading water doesn't isn't going to suffice in this situation. Um, and he was, you know, for the most part, he was quiet. He was not, I don't think he got near the kind of top echelon of airtime among the candidates. The counter to that, I guess, is that, you know, the Delaney's, the Hickenloopers and stuff, the people like that who are in even more of a precarious position than Beto, right? 
and and Beto has already qualified for the next debate. And and so he and it's likely the field will be winnowed a little bit at that yeah, point. Absolutely. So so he was in a position where getting out without a disaster is is not a terrible outcome right. for him. Yeah. One Democrat we maybe weren't expecting to see on TV last night was a Dallas <laughs> Senator Royce West. Uh, Matthew, can you fill us in on your favorite commercial break of the night? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, so um, as Patrick had reported in the blast um, and uh, given us a heads up on uh, John Cornyn was planning to run a commercial and was it Texas or just in some Texas cities? Uh, I think it was uh, according to an ad tracking firm. It was in Austin and in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Okay. Okay. And, um, so we were interested in seeing kind of what this ad was, what this message was, and it turned out to be an ad against Royce West, one of the multiple candidates in the Democratic primary against him. Um, I, you know, I, I was surprised to see that. It was an interesting choice for that first ad. Yeah, it was basically the, the content of the ad was the same as a digital ad that Cornyn's campaign had released in reaction to Royce West's launch last week. So the content was not a surprise um, or the, the, once you knew it was a Royce West ad, you knew it was the similar one that he released last week. Um, you know, West, uh, by by my by all appearances, you know, Cornyn's campaign is, is working to prop up West and elevate West more than any other Democratic opponent at this point, just in terms of the extent to which they've responded to his entrance into this race with the digital ad, uh, with how aggressively they've they went after him in, in, in their statement on his entrance and now actually taking that digital ad and putting it on TV. I'm sure it didn't, they didn't break the bank to do that, but it certainly signaled, I think, um, you know, who they, they view uh, as, as a preferred uh, nominee. And, you know, the, the why there, I think, is, you know, Royce West has been in, in the Texas Senate for 26 years, I believe, um, has a long voting record. Um, I think that Cornyn probably would love to go up against a Democratic nominee with all these, you know, potentially, you know, uh, perilous votes. Um, whereas some of these other Democratic opponents that uh, Cornyn has drawn don't have long voting records. Maybe a little hard to, a little harder to to attack. And we have another debate tonight, right, featuring another Texan in Julian Castro. What are we watching for from him? Yeah, so the stakes are a little higher for him in terms of making that next debate. He has the donors that he needs to make that next debate, but he's not quite there on the polling yet. So the stakes are a little higher. Um, I think for him, it's just about you know trying to press forward and trying to continue the momentum he got out of the last debate. He didn't see a huge polling bump out of the last debate, but I think that the last debate helped establish him as a more serious candidate uh, in the eyes of the media, at least, which is, you know, it may seem like a superficial measure, but media coverage of these debates is, is important um, given how not everybody watches them and some people rely on the, the actual media coverage the next day. So I think it, it gave him that kind of credibility in the last debate. Again, no polling bounce. He got some fundraising momentum out of it. So he's he's trying to, I think, going into this debate, trying to um, you know build on that momentum a little bit um, and obviously uh, get to a point where he can secure his place in the next debate. Yeah, he doesn't have his foil from the last debate. You know, last last debate, it seemed like he made a concerted effort to kind of target Beto. Um, that won't be the case this time because they won't be on the same stage together. But um, there is at least the possibility. It would. I don't think it would be surprising to see if he kind of continued to hammer on the immigration issues that he pushed in that that first go around. And we saw kind of a Castro shadow on the stage last night with a lot of questions targeting this kind of section 1325, you know, whether crossing the border should be a criminal offense. 
several candidates were asked that question, which must be a victory for Castro. Yeah, and his basically. campaign put out a news release as soon as the debate ended saying that, you know, his ideas won the night or something like that. <laughs> um, and he has, since the first debate, you know, he's been asked about how he's approaching the second debate. And he's basically said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to hesitate to again aggressively stake out kind of the, the immigration territory that I staked out at, at the first debate. So, um, you know, I, I expect to see him, you know, hammer that issue pretty hard uh, tonight as well. Well, we'll have to tune in. Um, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. Registration is open for Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute's fourth annual Engage and Excel Conference, Communities Transforming Behavioral Health Systems, September 2019 in Austin, Texas. Register at texasstateofmind.org. And the Fast Growth School Coalition. Texas has 70.5 billion reasons to invest in fast-growing school districts. Find out why at fastgrowthtexas.org. All right, for our final topic, we're going to turn to criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough, who's been uh, lucky enough to cover one of the most delicious post-session stories there is, how Texas may have kind of sort of accidentally uh, legalized marijuana. So, Jolie, can you start by reminding us what a new hemp bill was intended to do and what its impact has actually looked like? Sure. Um, so the new hemp law that went into effect last month is mostly intended to set up farming regulation, uh, shipping and selling procedures for a new product that we're going to grow in Texas starting presumably next year, uh, hemp. And this is following a federal law that passed last year. And it's basically Texas trying to set its own regulations instead of having the feds determine how this is going to go down for them. Um, and a little unintended piece of this was that in the process, they changed the definition of marijuana when they were legalizing hemp. Um, so now the definition, definition of marijuana changed from cannabis to cannabis with uh, more than 0.3% of THC, which is the part of cannabis that gets you high. And the sticking point here is that the crime labs in Texas, at least the government-run crime labs in Texas, do not have a way to tell if cannabis, how much THC is in cannabis. So a lot of prosecutors are dropping marijuana cases. They're refusing to accept new cases without these lab reports. Um, and it's kind of put the whole state of Texas in limbo in terms of where marijuana stands <laughs> right now. So as you reported this week, lawmakers did have some warnings that we might see these unintended consequences. What did who know and when? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's the interesting thing that's happened out of this is, um, you know, DA started dropping cases and immediately, well, not immediately, but afterward, state leaders, Republican leaders, uh, lawmakers kind of started pointing fingers, um, you know, chastising the prosecutors for dropping these cases, for stopping prosecution, saying it in no way decriminalized marijuana. Um, and the senator who pushed this through, Charles Perry, um, said that they're using this for political reasons. These are prosecutors who are trying to get marijuana off their dockets already. Um, and this is a convenient loophole for them to can, you know, to go about other business. Um, but they were told that this was going to happen multiple times um, throughout the legislative session. Um, a DPS crime lab director showed up at the House, a House committee hearing and when asked if there was anything they were overlooking, if there should be any concerns as far as law enforcement, he told them that they had no way to test for this difference between what would be legal hemp and marijuana. 
and that they would need new equipment, they would need new time to implement this equipment, and his comments were met with very, you know, still faces and silence. <laughs> your, yeah, your description of that, of, I think we've all been in those committee hearings where, you know, maybe it's been a long day, maybe someone's phone is on the, the dais, you know. <laughs> Phones I, are definitely on the dais. You know, uh, maybe you didn't actually hear everything that was said there, and it, it, it definitely made me chuckle to kind of see that described as, oh yeah, I've, I've been in that situation Yeah, before. I know, it happens, right? Like, they had sat through two hours of testimony on hemp, mostly on, like, farming and regulation, and, you know, they bring up the resource witness, who's the DPS guy, to talk at the, you know, what else are we missing, and people... Are kind of checked continue, out sometimes at to that miss point. It. Yeah. So what happens next here? You talked about kind of the expense that can be involved, the crime labs for kind of testing. What are local prosecutors doing? Are they expecting to get kind of the money they might need to still prosecute these cases? Well, so that's the other thing that came up during the legislative session. DPS did say in their fiscal note that like in their fiscal note estimates that they sent to the legislative budget board that they were going to need millions of dollars um, because there were assuming there were going to be a lot more marijuana cases that they had to test. They needed this new equipment to test them. Uh, those were dismissed. So that wasn't actually brought to lawmakers because the budget officials dismissed it. Um, and then state, a state crime lab, the one that runs um, for Houston, that Houston police use told the lawmakers directly like, Hey, this is going to essentially legalize marijuana. We do not have the funds to do this. DPS does not have the funds to do this. It's already incredibly backlogged. Um, and that was also pushed aside. So DPS did get about $50 million more million into their crime labs this budget, but it wasn't specified how that is to be used, and people have been stating that it's to be used for the backlogged rape kits, which it was said to be prioritized for the backlogged rape kits. Uh, so nothing was specifically earmarked for this, for an increase in marijuana testing. Um, and so that was a question, right? Like, how is how are we going to pay for this? St local crime labs still are seemingly, they're trying to come up with a way to do this, but it's still going to cost them money, more resources, uh, you know, more staffing. And DPS has said that they're going to use existing resources. So what that comes out of, like what pocket of money that comes out of is known. All right. Well, follow Jolie for answers to all those questions. Um, that's all the time we have. Thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, the Texas State University System, the Texas Alliance for Patient Access, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, and the Fast Growth School Coalition. On behalf of Cassie, Matthew, Patrick, Jolie, and our producers, Michael Ray and Bobby, this is Emma. Thanks for listening.